We're in part six on our series on gospel community. We've done two messages on devotion to the gospel. Part one was that the gospel community is centered around the gospel, the message of what Jesus has done for us, which we could not do for ourselves. It is the power of all of life, not just a front-end message that helps you to become a Christian. Part two was we talked about quiet times and our need to focus on hearing God's voice and not just the noise that's in our lives. Then we had two messages on the Acts 2.42 verse. It says that they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. We talked about meals. Part three was about meals and hospitality. Gospel uh, community part four, the, the, uh, the message number four was about the Lord's Supper that we break bread and the meaning of this meal that the Lord has given us, which is all about what he has done for us. And these last two messages, part five and part six, were about fellowship. Last week we talked about how the fellowship that the world is longing for is that a community would form together, which is more than just people just wanting what they more naturally prefer. That it goes beyond this, which we called a supernatural fellowship, a fellowship of grace we're talking about. And today, this is a kind of part two of that message. And in many ways, the whole goal, in some ways, the goal of this community, gospel community sermon series, is this message. This is a message that I've entitled, The Telos of God's Love. And I'll I'll get into that. What, What is the telos? But today, we're talking about the love of God and how it causes us to love one another. And that's why I want us to look at 1 John chapter 4 verses 7 through 12. Now, there's like three parts of, our, of the message that I'd like to get into. Number one, as we look into 1 John, they devoted themselves, in, in Acts chapter 2, what it says is the early church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which is the gospel, to the breaking of bread and fellowship and then prayers. And what I'd like to propose to you is fellowship is ultimately not hanging out, it's love. It is the practiced, intentional outworking of Christians loving one another because they have been loved by God through Jesus Christ. Now, there's three things I would like to get at in this message today from 1 John chapter 4. Number one, where do we see God's love? Number one, where do we see God's love? Number two, how is God's love perfected in us? What does it mean? What does that mean? It says in this passage that God's love is perfected in us. And then number three, I would like to talk about some practical implications for fellowship. Okay, so let's get get into this. Number one, let's get into verse nine. It says, "In this, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us." So, what does that mean to be made manifest? That means something. The love of, in this case, the love of God was either hidden or not clear. And if it's being made manifest, now we can see it. This is made now. It's been shown and it's been visible. So, what is the this? In this, the love of God has been made manifest. What's the this? Let's read on. It says that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. What is that? That's the gospel. How do you know the love of God? The love of God is the gospel. That's right there. It's just a summary statement of the gospel. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Let me just give you a little tip on how to read the Bible, especially the New Testament, which is the culmination of all the Bible. There are all these passages all throughout, and they'll give you these summary statements, which is, a, in a nutshell, 
It's a kind of shorthand nugget, which is the gospel itself, which is what Jesus has done for us, which we could not do for ourselves. That's the focus. And then he'll say, thus, therefore, think like this. Thus, therefore, look at the world like this. Thus, therefore, live like this. It's, it's, a, it's all the big implications of the New Testament. But here it is. In this, the love of God was made manifest. What? Through the gospel. Let's go to verse 10. He repeats, in this is love. In this is love. How do you know where the love is? It's the this. What's the this? Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Do you know what he just did? He just repeated himself. (laughs) That's what he did. The Apostle John says, in this we'll see the love of God. And then he gives you the gospel. And then he goes, in this is the love. And then you know what he does? He gives you the gospel. He gives you the gospel again. Now, let, let, me, let me expound this just a little bit. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. He loved us. First notice, it's not something that we do. If you want to see love, don't look to each other. Isn't that interesting? So the first thing it says is you don't look to each other. You look to what has God done, which is God loved us and sent his son. But it goes on. He sent his son and did what? To be a propitiation for our sin. To be the propitiation for our sin. Now, what's propitiation? Let me see if I can try to... I don't want to spend too much time on this. It's a big word, big theological word, and it's important, I think, that we learn these things. Sometimes uh, people go to church and they don't want to learn the theological concepts that the Bible teaches us. But if you won't learn the theological concepts, it's like you won't have the basic grammar and vocabulary and deep understanding of what the Bible teaches itself. I mean, if, you're, if you t- talk to your kid and says, eat the apple, and your, and your kid has no idea what an apple is, well, they're going to be without that blessing in their life, right? Well, we have to learn what propitiation is. Now, let me give you three concepts quickly. Atonement, propitiation, expiation. In one way, in all three of these words, it says that God sent his son to be the answer for our sins. What is the answer? The answer is atonement, propitiation, expiation. Now, we know that if you've grown up in the church or if you've I've heard the gospel, that Jesus did this, this incredible accomplishment. He did an action, which was he lived a life we should have lived and then he paid he paid on the cross, and we call that atoned. He, made, he did this. He paid a price so that our sins can be worked off, that can be worked away and can be put away, that we call that atonement. But within atonement, there are two aspects that sometimes the Bible, sometimes the Bible specifies. One is expiation, and the other is propitiation. What's expiation? The expiation portion focuses on the guilt. So that if you are a sinner, there is stain, there is guilt upon you. Jesus' blood was shed and his blood washes that portion off. That's expiation. The guilt, it's an answer to the guilt portion. But sin is fundamentally not just an action that incurs guilt upon you. Sin is something that destroys a relationship and, and then gets in the way of love. It effectively makes love impossible. And so... What is the propitiation portion? 
The propitiation portion is the fulfillment of the relationship itself. That's why in this passage, it says that Jesus is our propitiation. That's how the love gets to us. The relationship is restored. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, you really got to learn all these concepts. Expiation, propitiation, atonement. And um, let me make a little case to you. We live in a very pragmatic society that doesn't, they don't, they don't understand these vocabulary and they don't understand these deeper realities. And it's really wrecking us. But intuitively, you understand this is needed. You do. And let me, let me show, give you an example. If you have a relationship and you love somebody, let's say you have a long-term friend. So don't think of just somebody that you're just kind of an acquaintance. Let's say you have a long person, this person, you love this person, this person loves you. But for whatever reason, this person were to, behind your back, badmouth you, and then essentially stab you in the back. And you know this person did this. You knew this person did this to you. And this is a friend. Now, when you meet with this person next time, is there going to be love? <laughs> or is there going to be some kind of blockage? There's going to be a problem, isn't there? You may desperately want this friendship to continue. You want it to be just as good as before, if not to go on. So you may not immediately want to talk about this. Like, what is, why did you do that? Why did you stab me in the back? Why did you badmouth me like that to somebody else? You may not want to hit that subject matter, but if you leave it alone, there's something there, is there not? What that thing is, and, we, and our, our society doesn't call it that, that's sin. That's the sin. And is there guilt? There is indeed guilt. But now, there is this blockage. There's an obstacle for the sin. And if you want the love to flow back and forth between you and your friend, there must be an answer for that thing. And the Bible says that answer is atonement. The ultimate answer between God and us is atonement. But let's put it this way. How can the propitiation occur? How can the answer for this occur between you and your friend? The ideal way is your friend would admit his wrong and ask for your forgiveness and then would put it away. There'd be repentance and then your relationship could be restored. But notice, your hurt, the damage, for this to be put away, it will still cost you you can say, I won't forgive you. You're out. So then the no love is restored, right? But if you want propitiation to occur, you have to pay the hurt down. right? The hurt has to be paid down in your heart, and forgiveness is truly gone. That sin is gone, and now the love can flow again, right? That's the only way it can happen. You know, it's interesting. If you really love your friend, but your friend won't ask for forgiveness... And you know that if you bring this issue up, you might get into a worse fight. You might be willing to forgive your friend anyway, even though what they did against you was bad and hard and painful. And then their guilt, the pain, you would still have to pay this down in your heart. You know what you're doing when you're doing that? Paying this down in your heart and putting it out? That's propitiation. That's propitiation. And what God has done is he has made his son himself the propitiation. Because what's happening on that cross is all the ways in which we backstab God, he pays it off, and then he restores the relationship so that love can flow. 
So when you want to know who is, what is love? How can you see it? You want to see the love of God. You want to see the love of God? It's not like looking at your friends, even looking into the church. It's the wrong place to look. The way to look at it is to look at the gospel. It's to look at Christ. He is the propitiation. That's the point number one. So if you want to get into the love of God, really have the love of God deep in your life, again and again and again and again. Two weeks ago, I said um, I gave an illustration at, um, at our retreat that we are like Lucy from the movie Fifty First Dates. We are like that. In the movie Fifty First Dates, Lucy is this woman who, remember, who goes through a day, but she forgets everything from the day before. If you want to have the love of God deep in your life, you must have the gospel told to you again, because you, then you forget it the next day. Then again, and you forget it the next day. We're like Lucy. We're like insanely like brain damaged. So we forget, and then we go, next day, you go back to the gospel. That's how you see the love of God. That's point number one. Let's go to number two. How is God's love perfected in us? Now, let's go to, it says, go to verse 12. It says something very incredible in verse 12. No one has ever seen God. Have you? <laughs> I, I haven't. Um, nobody's ever really seen him with our eyes anyway. But it says, it says something very incredible next. Follow. It's really amazing. If we love one another... God abides in us. If we love one another, God abides in us. Now, I think what this is not saying is that if we use human effort and human love to each other, then, we'll see, then God will just show up. That's not what he's saying. It's not a kind of a sentimental notion that uh, God will be around if we just love each other. What it's saying is if we love each other in Christ, if we let the love of God be manifested through the gospel, and then we love each other, God will actually be seen in the way we love each other. That's how He abides. If you, you haven't seen Him, but if you love each other, He'll be in the midst of us, then we'll get to see Him. That's what it's saying. And then it goes on to say this. His love is perfected in us. Nobody's seen God. If you love each other, God will abide in us, and His love will be perfected in us. Now, what does that mean? Let me get into a list a little bit. The word in that passage in the Greek for perfected. Now, we, I think what we tend to mean, it's, a little, it's different than the, than the modern understanding. The modern understanding of perfection is that it has absolutely no flaws. Has no, has no, you know, has no mistakes in it whatsoever. So that if you take a test, what's perfection? 100%. Boom. If you have a perfect cake, there's absolutely no flaws. If you have a perfect car... There's no dents, no dings, right? That's not what this is talking about. The love of God being perfected in us doesn't mean no flaws and no mistakes. If that was the case, then it would never happen, right? Because human beings, we're full of flaws, we're full of mistakes, and even after you're saved, that's still going to be the case, right? What does it mean? The word in the Greek is an, is a, is an important word for us to learn. It's teloo. And it comes from this Greek concept called Telos. Now, what's a telos? A telos is a purposed ends. It's a goal. You have a goal that if we get to this, this is what it's all. This is what it was for. This is the telos. So, for example, why do you go to school? Hmm? We send our kids to school. What's the telos of school? You ever thought about that? 
One of the reasons why our education system in America is messed up is because we don't really have quite, we don't keep the telos, the goal in mind. But the goal of school is this, is to train, put knowledge and understanding and a certain character. It's not just stuff in the head. We want to actually train a certain character and habit in our children so that when they grow up into adults, they have been made prepared to contribute to be a member of our society, to contribute, to be really contributing members of our society. So if a person goes to school and knows nothing and doesn't, can't get a job, school failed. Right? person goes to school and they may have learned a bunch of stuff, but now they don't want to do anything and they'd rather commit crimes. In a sense, school failed. It didn't reach its telos, right? But it's funny how we also treat school. Some people go to school and you can still get things out of school. And I think this is the point I'm trying to make is you can still seek the love of God and get things out of it, but still miss its telos, still miss its goal, its completion. The love of God will not be completed in you, will not reach its telos in you. We do this sometimes in school. Some people go to school and they happen to be good at taking tests. So they get all the right answers and they get the A's. And what does it make them do? It doesn't help them necessarily. The tests don't necessarily help them becoming a contributing member of society when they grow older, but it does make them feel superior to others. It says, I'm smart, and the other guys are dumb. So what do they get out of school? They get pride out of school. Some people go to school, and they're prettier than other people, or they're more athletic than other people. So they go to school, and school becomes a stage in which they receive glory. But then when they grow older, they don't know how to contribute and become a member, a contributing member of our society. And in that sense, school didn't reach its telos, right? What is the telos? Here's what it says. If we love one another, God abides in us, and then his love reaches its telos. That's what it's saying. You know what the love of God, the way the love of God gets perfected in us is when we love each other. It isn't just for the love of God to come in on you and just go, boom, wow, that was amazing. Wow, it just fills me. It makes me really happy. That's not its telos. The telos is not to make you happy. The telos, the, the goal, the perfection, so to speak, the completion of the love of God is to, to come into you and it comes into you and it causes a response in you so that you will love someone else. You will love your brothers and sisters. And when that happens, then its completion has come. It's very interesting. It's very important. Let me like just, uh, I'll, I don't want to spend too much time with this, but let me make this point. Some of you, you really want the love of God in your life, don't you? I mean, who doesn't? I want to experience the love of God. I want to be filled with the love of God. I want to have the love of God in my life. But let me propose this to you. Let me ask you this question. Do you love other people? Is it in your life, is it a practice and a habit of your life to love others, especially your brothers and sisters. If it isn't, therein lies the reason why the love of God in your life is weak. Right? It isn't reaching its telos. And in a sense, if you won't go forward into the steps to love other people, you are frustrating the, its completion. The institution, the, the reality itself, is not really getting it to its completion in you. The reality of the love of God is such a tremendous thing. It's actually supposed to cause you to love other people. I'm going to say a little bit more about this later in, in the message. But I know it sounds like, does that mean that if I want to have the love of God, I've got to do something? That sounds like works righteousness to me, Pastor. 
That sounds like duty. And you're always saying that we're trying to do this out of duty. No, 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 no. Some people think, if I just show up and just hear the gospel all the time, then I'll just, uh, I'll just, uh, I'll want to love other people, right? Well, look, if you are a chemical and we do stuff to the chemical, then the chemical reacts, right? But you're not just a chemical. You're a person. And a person has a mind and a will and actually can make choices and, and move and, 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 and make a direction. And this is how the Bible treats you. The Bible treats you with respect. The Bible doesn't treat you like a chemical, but we want, we want to be treated like a chemical. Just kind of zap me, okay? If I get the gospel, then it's like a, it's like an automatic thing. I get the gospel, then it zaps me, and then I'll just, I'll just automatically want to love other people, right? That's not how it works, and we all know that. But somehow we want it to be easy like that, but that's not how it works. The Bible treats you with respect. And this is the way the Bible tends to do it. It gives you this tremendous reality. And then it says, feed on it, look on it, respond to it. But respond to it. Which is to say, set your eyes and fix on it, and then invest in it. Go down that path. And when you go down that path, then it's happening. Then it's coming into its fulfillment. Sometimes it doesn't always feel like you want to do it. And I'm going to get into this. But this is it. When you're walking down this way, then the Lord is, yes, <laughs> yes. It's not out of works righteousness. If you're going to do it out of your own effort, that is works righteousness. But if you're going to say, this is what the Lord has done, and let me follow it, that's different. I, I know that sounds like a subtle difference, but it is not. Those are, those are the power, it wells out of two different places. It's very different. It's an important difference. Now, let me go to our third part. Let me talk about some practical implications, right? All right, Pastor, you big. Jesus is the love of God. The completion of the love of God is when we love each other. All right, let me, let me say a few things. Number one, if you look at this passage, it's very clear that the love of God is an action, not a feeling. It is an action, not a feeling. And this is the love of God. Jesus really looked upon the church and said, she's so beautiful and I have this passionate love to go out there and get a spear in my side and pierce in my wrist and pour out my blood because I just have these great feelings for her, right? Is that, is that, is that what the passage says? No. It says that the Lord did an action. All throughout the Bible, love is always talked about as an action. How about love your enemies? Is the Bible crazy? Love your enemies. Don't just do good to those people who already do good to you, but do good to the people who do evil to you. How could you have feeling for your enemies? Who has feelings for enemies except generally we have hatred for our enemies? But when it says you do good to them, it's not saying change your feelings. What it's saying is do an action. Love is an action in the Bible. Biblical love, God's love, is fundamentally action-oriented. It accomplishes something. And so, let me say something to, to us. If you struggle with this question of loving other people, our society is fundamentally stupid and backwards. For us, love is a feeling which then produces an action. You're like, isn't that what love is? Because we look at each other and say, this is the only way we ever think that we love happens, is that it's a feeling, then that produces actions, then we think that's the only way love is. But actually, if you really think about the deepest real love, is it really just about feelings? Many of the people in this room, 
You come from immigrant families. And parents work very hard. You grew up with parents who worked very hard. Some of them ran a sandwich shop. They sold thousands of sandwiches, right? Or they ran a dry cleaner and they pressed lots of pants and, and uh, cleaned lots of shirts working with chemicals that weren't very fun, especially 20 years ago when it, wasn't, it was less uh, environmentally safe. Right? And you think when one of your parents or one of the, these, uh, these mothers, they woke up at 5 a.m. and said, I want to press this 5,000th pair of pants or shove this shirt you know, for the 10,000th you know, time to get it clean to make $5 so that I could love my children. Is it about their feelings? At 5 a.m., they're hurting. And the work, it's, honestly, it's kind of boring and tedious. Is it the feeling? But we know what they were doing day in, day out. That is love. That's love. What are they doing? Are they just working? No, they're loving. That's what they're doing. That's love. It's powerful love. It's real and serious love. So love, real love, you don't even, you actually don't need the Bible to tell you that love is fundamentally first an action, then which produces feeling. The feeling is the, is the caboose. The feeling is, uh, is, is the cart. But the love is more fundamentally, it's an action. And this is very, this is very, I hope, encouraging to you because you don't have to wait for your feeling. If, if I'm calling you, the Bible's calling you to love your brothers and sisters, it's not saying first dwell on the feeling and wait for a feeling and, get your, and stir up feelings in yourself. What it's saying is see what they need. See what will bless them. See what is their good and then go there. If you will do that, you're loving. That is loving. Do that. Engage that. And then... It's funny. As you begin to love people, the feelings will start to come. It is funny how that starts to happen. Your children. So that any of you who have had babies. Yep. It's funny how this works. With your spouse, you always want, you want, you have a feeling. You have a feeling for them. You marry them out of their feelings. And then when they, and then it gets harder and harder to serve them. You don't want to do it anymore, right? Because so, you're first expecting the feeling. But with your kid, your kid does nothing except poop on you, cry in the middle of the night, and do all this stuff that's totally annoying. And all you do is serve. You, all you do is do good for them. You, it's, all, it's so much action because you don't always have feeling. I assure you, you don't always have the feelings. Right? I have three kids. But you keep doing this. But the more you keep doing this, the love just goes so down and the feelings become so powerful that you can't not love your kid anymore. This is the way we were wired, and this is the Bible's wisdom. Right? Love is an action, not a feeling. That's implication number one. Number two, love is cost and requires commitment and priority. Let me say a little something quick. I won't try to say too long on this, but you know, nobody makes loving other people a priority. <laughs> loving fellowship. It's funny. Let me put it this way. Fellowship, loving other people a priority. Let me just tell you a quick story. I learned this a very interesting and odd way when I was in college. So this is, that was a long time ago. It's more than 20 years ago for me because I'm, I'm getting a little older now, right? And um, so as, as, as a number of you know, I went to Stanford University. And Stanford, let me tell you a little something about the culture of Stanford. It's crazy and ambitious. It's full of all these people who think they can rule the world because they're prideful and they have lots of skills and they have lots of gifts. So they think they can run everything and they think they can do everything. And so 
at Stanford, when I was going there, a typical schedule, what they would say is, if you want to graduate on time in four years, you should take 15 units per quarter. And you're crazy if you want to take a fifth year at Stanford because it's cost a fortune, all right? So you're supposed to take 15 units a quarter. The minimum was 12, and the maximum was 20. But you know what a unit is supposed to be? It's a one-hour in class, and they said you should expect two hours of work on top of that time in class for each unit. So 15 units is a 45-hour week. That seems like a reasonable amount of work, right? But that's not how Stanford students think. They show up. Stanford students go like this, and they talk to each other. Well, what are you taking this year? So I'm taking 18 units. I'm taking 19. Nobody goes around and says, I'm taking 13. If you say you're taking 13, they're like, what's with you? Are you lazy? Are you weak? They never say it quite that bluntly, but the implication is, are you weak? Because in the Stanford mind, you should be able to take 18 units, and you should be able to have a girlfriend, and you should be able to work out, and you should be able to have a part-time job, and you should be able to hard charge on your internship to run your career. So what is that supposed to mean? That means there is no time left over, right? There's really no time even to sleep. So what is, what is friendship on the Stanford University campus? It's, it's this. It's when I do all my work and I do everything I'm supposed to do. And then on Friday night, the guy I get drunk with, that guy's my friend. <laughs> or the person, we go to study in the library. I'm in this carol, that person's in that carol. And then after two hours, we get together and then we're miserable together. That's our friendship. Is that a friendship? That's just convenience. <laughs> That's just having people around who be with you. And here's the lesson that I learned. I was in InterVarsity Christian Fellowship when I was in college, and one of the older brothers said to me when I was a freshman, he said, look, Susan, don't take 18 or 19 units. Because do you realize what 19 units is? That's like 60-hour week or more. Actually, it's more than that. In midterm time and so forth, it's worse. It's crazy, okay? Um, students are actually loading on themselves 100-hour weeks with all the stuff that they have to do. So you know what they would say? They would say, make friends four units. That's what they would say. If you want to get godly and you want to have the love of God in your life, friends should be four units, at least three, four. If, the, if you really need to grow in faith, probably five. <laughs> and I, I, thought about, I thought about this. I like, what? And it was a crazy thing to hear when you were a freshman at Stanford because everybody's charging 18, 19, 20 units to have somebody say, make friends four units. God will be more in your life. And I realized... That means you have to take time and carve it out. That means, I actually had friends would accuse me sometimes like saying, aren't you kind of lazy? They would actually use that word. And I was saying, and I I have to think about it. Am I being lazy? No, I'm actually pursuing God. Now if if you study six units worth and you only spend time with your friends the whole time, I would say yes, you're being lazy. You do have the balance wrong. But if you do your 15 units work and you, do, you have four or five units of friends and you really love them, actions, that's, you, will, you will learn something. Let me say something about this. Since college, before college, I used to get spiritually dry a lot. You know that motion? I'm burned out. I don't want to do I don't want to serve at church. I don't want to do stuff. I, don't want to, I used to get spiritually dry a lot. But once I've learned this, it's funny. I rarely get spiritually dry. 
I rarely get spiritually dry. And I'm not saying this because I'm so godly. And over time, people have thought, oh, you're such a strong Christian. And I'm thinking, I don't think so. Right? I think I learned a very valuable piece of wisdom from older brothers when I was a younger man. And it has paid tremendous dividends over my life. If you want to the love of God to get to its perfection and completion, please make it a commitment. Make it a priority. Put four units of friends in your life. Cut out some TV. Something's got to go. I mean, something's got to go. That's the point I'm trying to make you. Something's got to go in order to make this a bigger portion of your life that you actively, intentionally do. Third last implication, and I'll close our sermon with a story. Fellowship is loving. That's it. You want real fellowship in your life? It's not holding a cup of coffee, eating a piece of donut, and having chit-chat, and then leaving. That's not fellowship. It's not hanging out when it's just convenient. That's what Stanford friends, Stanford people call their friends. I think most people at Stanford don't have real friends. They only have acquaintances. And many people in this day and age, we run very, very busy lives. We have our work. We have our hobbies. We have our TV shows. We have our shopping. We have our Internet surfing. And then... We have friends, which are really just acquaintances. But if you want real fellowship, it is lo- it's loving people. It's biblical love. And if you want real power of God's love in your life, please, fellowship, love other people. And at certain periods of your life, you may sense, you can't love everybody necessarily, that God will say, love these five people or love these eight people. And the reason we have developed this ministry, we launched this ministry a few months ago called Community Groups. And I, it is my hope and my prayer and my longing that many of you, if not most of you, or all of you, I've never heard of a church that has 100% participation in their community groups. But, I mean, we can dream, right? Um, I've heard that if your church gets to beyond 30 to 40% participation, commitment toward their community groups, you've got a strong, healthy church. Um, Let me just ask you, the community group is ultimately not a piece of religion. It's not a piece of doing church in the sense of churchianity. It is this. It is the matrix of biblical love. Fellowship, the matrix of biblical love. That's what it's about. You go into this place, you hang out with these people, and what you want to do is practice and experience biblical love and let God's love be perfected, completed, reach its telos in us. And when we do that, it is powerful. I hear that in Korea, they have, a, they have a phrase. They have a phrase that if you want a strong and healthy biblical church, you need to fly with two wings. That's what they call it. And you know what they mean by that? Here's what they mean. What they mean is, on one hand, there must be a strong gospel-centered worship. The preaching, the worship must be filled with Jesus Christ and the gospel. That's one wing. But if you got one wing, it won't fly. And what we've done so far in our church is we've made this worship time filled with the gospel. We sing it. We eat it. We hear it in these sermons. It's all about the gospel. And we're sowing this so that the centrality of the gospel will be in this church. That's one wing. But you know what? Our church, our church has been weak on the other wing. And that's why our church isn't quite flying yet. The other wing is this. The gospel is broken in fellowship. We feed on this through the love, it comes to its completion, then you get the other wing. And this community group is intended to let the other wing happen in our church. 
the centrality of the gospel and the love of God shared through fellowship. And when we get those, both those wings, then the churches fly. Please, brothers and sisters, please consider making a priority in your life to fellowship with your brothers and sisters. And please consider community group. I know I'm, I'm laying it all kind of thick as a pastor, but I'm not doing this just because I'm the pastor and I'm trying to put re, um, religion on you. Absolutely, this is the way there will be power in your life from God. Now, let me close this um, message with a, a story, as I often like to do. You know, sometimes we come to the church, you hear the gospel a lot. Jesus has done something for me. But sometimes you need to hear another story to help you to see Jesus, right? And what fellowship looks like. Fellowship from the Lord. Let me tell you a story here. There was a youth pastor here a number of years ago. His name in this church, and this is actually during the period when the church was split, but the youth pastor, so this is like four youth pastors before our current guy, Frank. His name was Chan Kim. There's a couple people here who knew him, right? And I was a very young pastor at the time. This was my first stint at this church. And Chan was the youth pastor, and I was the EM pastor back then, the English ministry pastor. And I got to know Chan. And if you meet Chan, Chan is an athletic guy. Chan is a tough guy. He's pretty well built, and he has a, he has a face. It looks tough. It actually looks kind of like mean. And if he got angry at you, you'd be scared at him. Chan has quite a testimony. His conversion story is incredible. The way Chan grew up in Southern California in not-so-great neighborhoods, and Chan used to be in a gang, and he would tell stories about, oh, yeah, when I was a teenager, we would see a guy in the street, and my friends and I would go, let's just go beat him up, just for fun. And they would just go beat this guy up and rob him just for fun, not even really for the money, just for fun. Isn't that a great guy? One of his friends, when he wanted to steal money from him, he started actually scoping out his friend's parent's house because he realized, hey, I already know how to break into my... I've already been in my f- friend's house, so I know how to break into that house. So this guy actually would go to his friend's house and steal money from his friend's parents. That was Chan's friends. And Chan also used to do drugs. Chan also used, used to do heroin, actually. So... We're not talking just pot. They did hard drugs. They did heroin. And then he had a very powerful experience when he heard the gospel as a young man and he got saved. And down the road, he, he, wanted, he, wanted, he wanted to go to seminary and become a pastor. But one day, this was very early on when I was um, at the church, I and a bunch of other guys we were hanging out at, at Chance apartment. And as, as guys tend to do, the TV was on. It was on to... ESPN, of course, <laughs> and Sports Center came on, and the announcer said something about Dwight Gooden. I think not Dwight Gooden. Daryl Strawberry was a famous athlete, I, I, and I want to say it's Strawberry. Daryl Strawberry, if you, if you guys, he's a little bit before some of you guys' time if you're young, but he was a superstar, absolute, absolutely greatly gifted for the New York Mets, an outfielder. He could do it all: Gold Glove, hit for power, everything. But it said Daryl Strawberry had been arrested for cocaine or something and you know even though he'd been a christian and the guys heard this news and they were like oh daryl's not really a christian and and, and the reaction in the room was like about there's about 20 guys 15 20 guys in, in this apartment and they were like daryl's not really a christian man i mean how could he be christian if he did drugs and 
uh, you know, so they're talking about this, da 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 And one of the guys decided, hey, let's ask the new guy. Let's ask the new pastor. So I said, hey, Pastor Sal, what do you think? You think, you think Daryl's a Christian? And I was like, well, I, you know, it's a little bit uncomfortable because kind of the consensus in the room was that Daryl's a jerk and that's not a Christian. And I said, well, I don't know if Daryl's a Christian or not, but I don't see why he can't be. Being not doing drugs is not what makes you a Christian. If you do drugs, that's precisely why you need Jesus. And a person can become a Christian and fall off the wagon. That happens to Christians all the time. I don't see why he can't be a Christian. So, probably a Christian. I say he's probably a Christian. I don't know for sure. It was interesting. The room got kind of quiet. And then Chan piped up. He said, thanks, Susan, for saying that. Because, hey, guys... um, you know, I know I'm like, you know, you're, you're a youth pastor. A number of the guys were in high school at the time. He said, but I became a Christian, and then I got really serious about the Lord, but, hey, I, I fell. And I went back and started doing drugs, and I was doing heroin, and the brothers had to come get me. They had to come love me. And I was literally strung out. I was literally in a gutter in an, in an alley, and they actually had to wander around the streets to come find me, and they found me, and they had to clean me up, and they took me home, and they took me back to church and helped me come back to the Lord. So, so I was like, Chan, <laughs> you're stud. I was thinking here, I, was, I felt like in that moment, Chan and I were, were really being pastors that day. But, you know, those brothers who came to get Chan, you know what they did? They did fellowship. You ever think of that as fellowship? It's fellowship. And you know why they did that for Chan? Because Jesus did that for us. That's why. We do it for each other because Jesus literally took us out of the gutter, out of our gutter. He came wandering around for us on the street. Even when he didn't necessarily feel it, I'm not feeling it, gutter dude, gutter girl but I will come and love you. So this is why we, we will feel the love of God complete in us when we will do this with, for each other. Just as it was done for Chan, and now Chan is, Chan's a good pastor now. Chan is loving a lot of brothers. There are so many people that have been moved and met by him, right? And uh, it was an honor for me to serve with Chan, and I admire him. But Chan wouldn't have been Chan if other brothers didn't love him and fellowship with him. We're going to go to the table now. This table signifies all of it. The propitiation. We're going to eat the the body of Christ, which is our fellowship. Brothers and sisters, love each other because Christ has loved you. Let's pray. Go to the table. Lord, we confess to you we are weak in fellowship. If not, sometimes, even though we're a church, our fellowship is maybe almost non-existent. Please forgive us. And please, just as you weren't necessarily feeling it, may we be godly like you, even when we're not feeling it. Maybe that is when we'll be the most divinely loving, even when we're not necessarily feeling it because we have set our eyes upon Jesus, cause us to love one another.
And let our church fly, Lord God, and draw people to you, because then in in the midst of us, they will see God. Lord, I stand before my brothers and sisters, and I admit to them that so much of what I do as a pastor is this. This, I just want to experience this. And I pray that they would long for this too. You would put this longing in us. And then you would do this to us. Do this to us, Jesus. And help us fly. In Jesus' name.